Establishment's Talent Talk Asia podcast is brought to you in partnership with Vincere, the new breed tech platform used by 15,000 recruiters worldwide. Vincere is the secret weapon for progressive recruitment firms. It provides recruiters with everything they need to scale from CRM slash ATS through to online timesheets, websites and analytics. A true all-in-one growth platform built by recruiters for recruiters. Learn more about Vinny's story on my exclusive interview with their founder on episode 43 of this podcast. If you're looking for a new recruitment CRM to accelerate growth, visit vincere.io slash Talent Talk Asia for an exclusive offer for all listeners of this podcast. Welcome to this episode of Talent Talk Asia. I'm your host, Andrea Ross, and I'm delighted to have Harjit Qatar, founder and managing director of Icon Consulting Group on the show. Now, Harjit originates from Leicester and started his early career as a police constable in the UK to be in the global top biller at K2 Partnering Solutions and since 2018, setting up his recruitment business, Icon Consulting Group. Now, recently, it was announced that he successfully sold a majority stake in his business to a Singaporean private equity family office. It's no surprise his business was snapped up with Harjit's track record. Last year, he brought in 4 million in NFI and the office brought in 6.5 million with an 80-20 split between contract and permanent. Not bad for a guy that dropped out of university. Now, in this episode, you will get to hear how Harjit has honed his ability to build relationships with clients, how he leveraged those contacts to build a successful recruitment business, and what exciting plans he has for Icon Consulting Group in the future. You'll be really surprised by his down-to-earth approach and how the core values of the business are deeply ingrained principles that guide the business. This is what is in store for you today. I think it's um, it's just the core values of the business because, again, I do believe the founder of a small business should set down the values, the vision, and, you know, what you're really looking for when you're building a team out, especially in a sales business, is, you know, a, a group of people with the same set of uh, values, mindset, and, uh, and, and the best ways to lead by example. So, you know, I'm, I'm still on the phones at the moment. Um, I probably will be forever, I think, to some extent. Um, you know, the plan is obviously to grow the company a lot, lot bigger and not to be so hands-on in the future. But I think some element of me will always help generate business, revenue, clients, because, you know, the CEO for me is the, the representative of the company. Enjoy the show. How are you doing? I'm good, Andrea. Thank you. Yourself? Yeah, I'm doing well. You have had a pretty blimmin' busy week, so I'm glad that we actually got around to actually recording this podcast. Um, first of all, I want to say thanks to um, Tim Klinke, that is your CEO and my ex-colleague from Robert Waters, um, that put us in contact, so that's kind of cool. Um, this week, you're all over social media with the recent announcement that you sold a majority stake in your recruitment business, Icon Consulting Group, to a Singaporean private equity family office. But before we get into that, let's start from the beginning on how you kind of got here. So let's let's start from kind of university life, or at least perhaps university life that wasn't for you. 
there's a certain amount of pressure to complete a university degree. Now, we see it as the opening of the door to more opportunities and, you know, obviously a securer future. In your case, you didn't complete your degree in mathematics. Now, talk me through the decision to drop out. Uh, okay, so going back a few years now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I am, aren't I? Uh, <laughs> Get your memory yeah, kicking in. Back, uh, back when I was uh, a lot younger and smarter. So, so <laughs> at that time, I think when I went to university itself and I was looking at courses and such, um, you know, I didn't have a huge amount of life experience. And, and even my parents, per se, had both, you know, come from India to the UK you know, we're working in factories, so they didn't really have that experience to help guide us also. And because I was pretty good at uh, you know, numbers, so you know, I did A-level maths, accountings, and, and economics and such, that was the direction I was, I was pushed in at that time by my former teachers. Um, I can't say I hugely enjoyed the subjects, but, but I was just good at it. So, so when it came to, to university, um, I ended up choosing a degree with economics and, uh, and advanced statistics. Oh, my which, gosh. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> which, uh, Run of the road, <laughs> middle of the road type of course the, then, yeah? <laughs> yeah, I, I had the grades for it. Um, but once I, I got there, I just did not enjoy it. And, uh, and on hindsight, you know, I'd also done A-level psychology, sports studies, which, uh, which were much more passions of mine. And I, uh, I probably should have gone down. Especially, I think, at university is the first time where, you know, you study, but there is no one to ensure that you have to attend. You know, you, you go back to school and college, you don't show up, you know, your parents find out there are issues. Uh, at university, I think you have that first uh, element of freedom to, to run your own life and, you know, your own calendar. And, and I think what happened for me was I picked a course that I really wasn't passionate about. And then I found out that, well, I didn't have to attend at the end of the day. And, uh, and I think that's what ended up with me not completing uh, the course at that time, which was also added on to the fact that the initial career I'd always wanted to do um, didn't require a degree anyway, which, uh, which was to be a police officer. So why didn't you decide to go straight into the police at the beginning did you want to, can you can you get further up the, the career ladder having a degree in the police was that sort of a reason why you decided to do that um you I think it, it is looked upon positively if you have a degree in the police but but that wasn't the real reason for myself again just coming from a from a background where everyone is taught as a child you know study as much as you can go to college go to university get a degree it'll help you get a good job it's almost like a, a default mode that is put yeah. into people without ever actually, you know, questioning it at the end of the day. And and as a student, you know, if you're getting A's and B's in your exams, at no point does anybody ever ask, do you want to study further? It's, it's just an assumption that is yeah. made. Basically. Knowing what you know now in terms of, and obviously we'll go on to that later in terms of the successes you, you've had at selling um your your business for your own children or your I don't know if you've got kids now or future children would you um would you be encouraging them to go down that route or will you look at things quite differently um I think I would look at what do they actually want to do and does that route help get them there in all honesty because again there is there is so much you know studying that is done which isn't relevant to a profession you want to get into. You know, if you want to be a doctor, of course, you need to study, right? If you want to be a lawyer, you, you need to study law. 
But if you don't want a specific career or vocation, going to university just to do a degree in media studies or sociology, you know, while I don't think there's anything wrong with it, I don't also see the point of studying just for the sake to say I have a degree. You know, if and when I was to have kids in the future, I would ask them what do they want to do and what is the best path to get there if it includes a degree for sure. But if it doesn't, no, I don't think I would uh, specify my children have to go to university. Yeah, I think it's a good point. So what was it about the police force that intrigued you? What made you decide to sort of, you know, cut the ties from the studies and, and go and enroll in the police force? Um, so it, was a, it was a couple of things. It was from when I was, uh, when I was very young, really. And, uh, and, and, and there were a couple of different elements to it. So one was you know, just to be seen in, in society, you know, it, it is a pretty noble job. You know, it is you know, a bit of a cliche, you know, pillar of society. But again, growing up with parents who are, you know, immigrants into the UK and me being second generation, to really integrate into, into the society or, and, you know, be part of, uh, of Britain, to be in the public sector, I thought was a, uh, you know, was a really good thing to be doing. But also, I think the bigger drive for me personally was I believed it was a career where I could actually really make a difference. And again, it's a bit of a cliche, right? You want a career where you make a difference. Mm. But when I, when I thought about it, you know, when anything happens to you or your family, right, you're a victim of crime, your house is burgled, you're attacked. What's the first thing you think of? Is is called the police, call my right? Brother. No, yes, yeah, called the police. Yes. <laughs> the uh, but most people it's, uh, it's called the police, right? Yeah. And you know you're in a vulnerable state, and and the impact that a police officer can make to your life is is absolutely huge at the end of the day, right? And and everything you're doing can be or will be affecting people's lives every moment of the day. So for me, it was just something that I felt I really would make a mark mm. in whatever I'm doing to, to people. And did you do kind of interns before that then, or did you go straight into it? Uh, no, so I went straight into it. The, the actual recruitment process for the police in itself is uh, it's quite interesting. There's eight rounds, and, uh, and it takes about 18 to 24 months Oh my God, it sounds like Robert Walters' interview trying to get in the door. Yeah, <laughs> probably similar. <laughs> so, so talk me through when you did it. When you did finally, you know, um, was successful and became a police officer, was it what you'd expected when you actually got got into the job? But some parts of it were, some parts of it weren't. So, you know, the, the parts I expected, it was extremely fast paced. It was extremely intense in what way so you could so to give you an example in my first week as a police officer I had to attend the scene with a uh, with a dead body and the body had been there for over six months uh the gentleman had uh, committed suicide and he had no family or friends we were only alerted because the neighbors were smelling the decomposed body because it'd been there for six months through the letterbox and, no one uh, had even noticed that this person hadn't been around. So he had no one in his life that cared. Nobody, uh, nobody had noticed. And when we got there, he'd written a letter, at which point he'd said, you know, his whole life he'd been a loner. 
he didn't have any friends, never had a relationship, nobody would miss him. And um, God, and he was and right. No one did miss him for being there six no months. That's absolutely tragic. And the body was very decomposed. It'd been there for six months. And um, so, you know, without getting too graphic, it wasn't in the best state. And then um, you have some very interesting things in the UK law, which is until a coroner pronounces the body dead, it's not officially dead. And as a uh, kind of uh, chain of evidence, if you're the first officer attending, you need to keep your kind of eyesight on the body until it is pronounced dead. And at that time, there was a coroner strike. Of course there was. So oh we gosh. had to wait eight hours. I had to stand and look at a decomposed body no. without losing the eye line um, in my first week as a police officer. And it had been there six months. There was all sorts of things crawling over it. Oh, my God. How did you, how did you, how did you get through that? Um, well, it's, it's, it's funny. I actually did get an award for resilience for that uh, as it was part of my first week. I, I think you, you just go into a sense of duty at the end of the day, right? Um, you know, this is your role. This, this is, is your expected. job. Right? This is what's expected. You've signed up for this. You've made a commitment. And but is there training to get, is, you know, in terms of kind of the interview process and the training, can you get trained to be able to go through something like that and be equipped to manage that sort of mentally and physically? Uh, they can try and prepare you. At the end of the day, you know, you, the, the training is a six-month training that you undergo and they do give you role plays and scenarios. But I think really until you're actually faced with it um, and your own resilience is tested, you wouldn't really know how you would uh, how you'd handle it. But of course, they do try and prepare you for as much as possible. I, I think it is such an interesting um, job to have. It is full of such variety. Um, but what I was quite keen to know is what what sort of led you to move out of the police force? Because you know, you know, it's something that for you it sounds as if there was a bit of a calling for you and a sense of pride around it. So, what was it that made you decide not to actually pursue that as a long term career? So for me. The job, like I mentioned, some parts were, were what I expected and I really enjoyed them. Mm. Um, I think I was a little bit unfortunate on when I joined. There was a lot of um, a lot of cuts in the UK government. So it was uh, a little bit of a negative aura around the police force at that time internally. You know, um, the government were cutting the amount of police officers. They were cutting supplies. And um, there was a lot of... Um, negativity at that time and that had meant a lot of the more experienced seasoned people when uh, when we joined were in a little bit of a, of a kind of anti-government mindset mm -hmm. uh, and that made it very difficult for somebody who came in with full of positivity at that time mm. uh, somebody who uh, wanted to really you know make an impact and a difference so I did find that there was a lot of um, cynicism. There was a lot of negativity um, around the more experienced police officers. And then the other thing I think I also found mm. was for myself personally, you know, I, I was quite ambitious. I was quite driven. I wanted to, uh, to, you know, really go up the ranks as fast as possible. And the public sector 
isn't a great place for people that are very, very ambitious and, and want to go fast. I did start to feel, you know, it didn't matter what I delivered, what I achieved, if I wasn't, you know, in the right crowd or, you know, if I didn't, you know, follow the unofficial guidelines of what, you know, you have to do to, to go ahead, it wouldn't be based on your own deliverables to, to move ahead in the police force. It was almost about who you knew as much as what you knew. And was that harder for you, you know, being from, you know, originally from India in terms of family? So was that, I mean, I know we don't necessarily want to be getting into that as a storyline possibly, but was that a factor in terms Um, of those relationships? Yeah, to some extent, um, you know, know, within the, the police force in the UK, you know, you have varying ranks, starting from constable, sergeant, inspector, chief inspector, superintendent, chief super. Uh, assistant commissioner, commissioner. So there's like 10 ranks. Gosh, that is a lot um, of ranks. There, there are. Mm. Um, also like Robert Walters. And, <laughs> um, <laughs> at, that, uh, and at that time, um, there wasn't any Asian ethnic officers above uh, above sergeant in the whole of uh, Leicestershire, where I was wow. a police officer. Wow, wow. So, you know, would I say I suffered direct racism? No, I, I wouldn't say that at all. But did I see a, a glass ceiling to some extent? Yes, I, I think I did at that time. Yeah, that's a shame, isn't it? So what led you to then move? So you, so you, well, just in terms of looking at LinkedIn, keeping it simple, in 2008, you joined Spring in the UK, which is obviously part of the ADECO group as an ERP recruiter where you stayed for four months. Talk, talk me through kind of, you know, why so short? What was, you know, what was the reason for getting into recruitment? A bit different from, from, from the police. Yeah, so when I when I left the police, um, you know, I didn't have a huge amount of options, to be honest, right? Because, you know, I went from a, a straight A student to, to somebody that, you know, wasn't interested in studying anymore uh, because I just wanted to be a police officer. And then having, uh, you know, decided that that wasn't the way forward, I was kind of left in my mid-20s thinking, right, now what do I do, you know? I, I did used to be quite smart. I had a bit of potential, but um, <laughs> there aren't a huge amount of doors open because, again, you know, if you leave an accountancy as an accountant, you will go somewhere else to do the same thing. Yeah. Same for the profession. But, but once you stop being a police officer, there is no direct correlation um, apart from security guard, which yeah, wasn't. It, yeah, it's happened. interesting you say that, though, isn't it? Because. But we we see that because we 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 think it is quite narrow. But I mean, the job of a policeman in terms of the relationship building, dealing with conflict and negotiations, coming people down, like that whole people side. I mean, gosh, it's massive. But we do sort of narrow the police when they come out to just looking at security stuff. And oh my god, there's so much more to that, isn't there? It's huge. You know, like the, the paperwork. We used to have to present files for the Crown Prosecution Service, so all of those files would need to be correctly formatted all the correct paperwork would need to be in there. Right. Um, even knowing all of your uh, laws and legislations, when you are arresting somebody, you know, you need to actually state the law and the legislation you're arresting that person under. Right. Um, there, there are so many elements to it that get overlooked. Yeah, it's very much so. And what a shame that that is the case. Yeah, it, yeah, it is. Although, again, I always look back to the amount I learned there because it's such a diverse job. Yeah. It, it's what helped me in my future anyway. Um, but then going back to, so once I did leave and, you know, 
I was looking at, you know, what can I do next? I actually, um, I think the correct terminology is fell into recruitment is the, uh, is the correct terminology <laughs> yeah. that I'm using um, due to my older brother. So I, I have one older brother and he was actually in recruitment at that time. And he was working for the Yes3 group. And, uh, and I recall thinking, well, I'm twice as smart as my brother. I work twice as hard as my brother, yet he seems to make a lot more money. So if he can do it, maybe I should look at this recruitment stuff. And that was it. That was a pretty easy thing. So why so short um, over at Spring? Um, so basically, when I initially started and looking at recruitment jobs, you know, I applied all over. And, you know, again, your initial instinct is go for the bigger firms. Yeah. So you bring your Robert Walters, your Michael Page, because, you know, you think that they have a more structured career path. They are you know, larger corporate firms are mm. more safe, they're more bigger. Hence, um, that was the, the kind of firms I was applying to. And, and Spring was the one that I accepted at that time. Now, what I found on the other side of the, uh, of the coin, though, is with the bigger, more corporate firms, it's not so personalized. So when I joined, there was a recruitment training intake. We went down to um, a, uh, a residential kind of a hotel they'd booked for a week with a, with a trainer. Good guy, still in touch with him. Um, you know, we went through training of you know, recruitment consulting 101, came back up to the office and there was an element of, right, you know what the job is. Now, here's a BD list, off you go. And, uh, and I didn't really enjoy that approach, to be honest, because for me, I was more of a, you know, I wanted more context. I wanted to understand more about what I was doing. And the manager I had at that time was, well, you'll understand as you go along. Right. Just there's a bunch right. of people for them, it's right? Not such, it's not so tailored to an individual. No. It's all just kind of scripts and templates and doesn't matter what your personality is. Just get, so we're all, we're all going to sound the same. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and I think the one thing about myself is I've always been, you know, I like things that are bespoke, that are specialized, that yeah. are, you know, that are niche, that are tailored. And Within the first couple of months there, it was like, it just felt like it was a, it was a factory. And again, it just almost gave me that feeling again of it doesn't matter what you do, you'd have to follow through these processes mm. again. And, and that wasn't what I was looking for after I'd left the police. Um, you know, what I really wanted was to, to be mentored to really, you know, be taken under someone's wing per se yeah. and to be, you know, see a career path to move forward with, which which I just did not see at all at Spring. And so you ended up moving to Maxima Sighting, spent a, what, spent a year and a half with them. So yeah. then you joined Provenis for three years and four months that are IT specialists. So what, so what was it that kind of got you towards more the IT side for recruiting? You know, of all the functions you could have got, gone into, um, what was it about IT that kind of fascinated you? So uh, to be very honest, what I did when I was at Spring and I thought, right, recruitment, fine. I like the look of this, but this isn't the right place, right? I, I, I want to go somewhere more dynamic. And I still remember I literally went on the Sunday Times 100 fast track companies and there were about six recruitment companies on there. And I, uh, and I emailed all of them uh, with my CV and um, saying, you know, I'm quite committed to recruitment. 
I see your business is quite dynamic, you're growing fast. I'd be very, very interested in discussing with you if I can have you know, more of a personalized fast track journey, if I'm willing to give the commitment my side too. And, uh, and Maximus was the first one that came back to me. The, uh, the former CEO back then replied back pretty quick saying, you know, he likes my approach. Um, when can I come to London? And at that time, I was living in, uh, in Leicester and, uh, and spring was in Birmingham. So actually going down to London was, uh, was a bit of a trip. because God, It's a bit nicer than I, Birmingham, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah just a touch. But I'd, I'd never actually spent much time in London, um, you know, coming from the Midlands, studying up north. So um, and I have no family or friends really in London back then. So it was almost like a, a bit of a day out for me anyway. And, uh, and so, yeah, so I said, um, yeah, he replied to him, when can you be there? I said, tomorrow. And then uh, I took the, the train the next day, um, had an interview with him. And, uh, and I still remember, it was, it was quite interesting. It was like, so what made you reach out? And I was like, well, very honestly, your company is growing fast. Um, it's obviously quite dynamic. I would like to understand how, why, and what part can I play to, to help with your growth? And, you know, is there a win-win? You know, I will help you with your growth. You help me with my career. And within about 45 minutes, he'd ask me when I, when could I start? Yeah, because that was a really interesting approach that you took because normally it's a, it's an interviewee saying, you know, what, what is the role and, you know, um, what are you going to give me? But actually there was that sort of, um, you know, two-way approach there. What, you know, how are you going to get out of it for each other? I love that. So did they, did they give you what you were asking for in regards to kind of having someone to be mentored? You know, you let, yeah. did you have that? Yeah, for sure. So there I started off as a delivery consultant. Yeah. I always look at Maximus as my first start to recruitment because with spring, literally for two months, I was just calling, having no idea what I was doing. And then spent the last month working out which option to take to get out of there. Right. So I always look at Maximus as a start of my career. And yeah, and I was a, I was a personal kind of delivery resourcer for uh, a guy at the time, uh, Lloyd, who, who was a, you know, uh, top biller, as uh, we would say. So he was doing uh, about a million pound a year back then. Wow. And uh, and that was in ERP contract um, and perm, to be fair. He was dual desking and ERP in tech. And that was really the reason I ended up doing, doing ERP in tech was I was initially asked to do that market by spring because they saw there was high fees, high margins, in, uh, in ERP and tech and Spring was trying to elevate themselves into the more niche markets although the business didn't really cater for what they were trying to do whereas in Maximus was literally one of the leading ERP tech niche businesses in uh, in the UK at that time and uh, and yeah and I, I was taken directly by Lloyd to work on his requirements his delivery um, you know personally be trained by him you know, he would say jump. I would say how high, basically. Yeah. And so you, so you spent what a year and a half with Maximus. So why was that? Yeah. Why was that? I mean, why was that so short in the respect that did you not did you not have the opportunity to be able to go from delivery to three sixty, or was it just that Provenus came down the road, you know, knocked on the door? What what was it that time that sort of motivated you to move what on? It was so Maximus was a great learning. Uh, ground for me right central london it was all very very new to me right central london three-piece suits yeah Rolex, lovely yes. um and uh and and i did quite well i remember i made my first placement in the first week um and then 
within the first 12 months, I'd kind of, you know, uh, hit every target and then some. And, uh, and what was even more interesting at that time was it was the global financial crisis. So when I got into recruitment about 2008, and, and I moved down to London, and there were all of these senior consultants saying, you know, the market sucks, you know, the GFC is a problem. Um, and because I was probably quite naive and I didn't know any better, I was like, well, I, I just did a deal. And yeah, they're looking. It didn't affect you. Yeah. You're a bit rubbish. And, <laughs> yeah. And all these senior people were like, yeah, but we used to do 10 deals, but I'm only doing five. I'm like, I used to do zero, so I'm doing five. So I'm, <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> up for me. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and off the back of that, I ended up, um, you know, hitting all of my targets and then some. And uh, as well as the delivery, one of my targets was leads. And I remember I used to uh, resource for Lloyd and I used to come back with leads. Uh, a lot because I used to meet a lot of consultants mainly because I could expense my lunch to be very honest with you as I just moved down to London and I wasn't on a high salary if I took a consultant out for lunch I could expense it so I was out I'm hearing you I'm hearing you yeah I did kind of the similar thing yeah it was so expensive in London so expensive to live I used to I tell you what I used to really hate what Michael Page was it was someone's birthday and there'd be like a whip round and everyone had to put £10 in. <laughs> I swear to God, I only had £10 for the week and someone wanted that for their birthday. I didn't even know that person was. I was like, oh my God, seriously? You know, where can I find the cheapest cafe for lunch? Yeah, crazy. So you would was- use your expenses. So so your your success at getting leads, you're also well fed as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> win, win. yeah. It was because I would meet so many consultants and you know, genuinely, I would get to know them because, well, if I'm going to, you know, use them to expense lunch, I should spend a bit of time with them. <laughs> and uh, and off the back of that, I would get a lot of leads. And uh, I remember to come back with Lloyd and say, you know, they're hiring, they're hiring, they're hiring. And, and it got to a point after six months where he said to me, Haji, I'm sick and tired of this, right? <laughs> if so many people are hiring, it's time you started doing some sales calls. Because, right. we, you know, I'm maxed out already. Right. Um, go do some sales calls. And, uh, and I still remember thinking, well, no, no, no. I find the CVs. You do everything else, <laughs> right? And, uh, and he was like, just get on with it. And, uh, and because, again, I, I had some very good leads. It was a very soft intro for me to a lot of uh, these sales calls. And I um, and I started kind of 360-ing from there. Right, so you cut your teeth on those kind of relationships earlier on. Yeah, that's nice. And, uh, and then I did 360 and then again, I, I was going quite well. And, uh, and what actually happened while well, I left after 18 months, um, you know, was a, I wouldn't say, was it, was it a salary dispute per se? It was, um, you know, Maximus was a, a niche business and yeah. I had a good relationship with the mentor and the owner, but because I was doing very well and it was my basic salary, um, was still very low and you know in London a lot of expenses and I was okay. doing well in commission and I asked to be bumped up and uh, and the owner was like but you're making good commissions and I'm like yeah I agree but I'm also billing more than these guys yeah it's that recognition isn't it and value yeah and uh and we kind of um and it was a shame because I said to him I'm very happy here um and it's just yeah it's just kind of a a fairness, if you know what I mean, yeah. right? Like, you yeah. know, we had a deal that I would, you know, do everything I could to fast track myself. Yeah. And if I delivered, you would deliver. And 
I have delivered and you're kind of saying, yeah, you'll get there, which again, wasn't what I wanted to hear. Yeah, it's quite short-sighted. Is that why you then entertained the call with Provenus? Well, no, I actually then uh, approached Provenus as well. So in that industry of the ERP niche tech, um, I did the same thing. I emailed three people that were leading in the market at that time. uh, (laughs) Such an opportunist. (laughs) Yeah, and two of them, two of them came back to me. Um, one of them didn't believe the fact that I was billing hundreds of thousands, and I was openly looking to leave. Um, the other two did, um, and then I met, uh, I met uh, the two. And Provanis was the one that was the better fit for me because it was a very different approach. You know, Maximus was in the city, uh, very salesy. You know, mm-hmm. sales bill, everything was um, very kind of. Um, slick shall we say Provanis was based in Twickenham and it was a very different kind Ooh, of business nice. it was set up, yeah it was mm. set up by a former ERP consultant and a sales guy rather than pure recruiters and um, so it was a little bit know, more of a mature approach a bit more of a sensible, sensible approach was that was that sort of what kind of got you towards wanting to move more into that, that area or? yeah it seemed a little bit more I don't know sophisticated is the word yeah. you know it was in Twickenham, a bit of greenery. You know, the guys would wear jumpers to work rather than three-piece suits. Nice. Um, and they acted more like kind of management consultants yeah. than uh, than sales people. Yeah. And uh, and yeah, got on very well. And uh, and that's what led to me transitioning to them. And and ironically, you know, as per always, the day I left Maximus, you know, the owner did say we'll match their salary, and I Oof. was like. Well, it's not the point, right? It's Too the right now, yeah. So how long, you were you at how long were you at Provenus for? Uh, so it was about three and a bit years, three and a half years. Okay. So was it what you thought it would be when you joined, joined there in terms of looking back on those three, three and a half years? Uh, yeah, it was. It was, uh, it was very niche. It was very boutique-y. We, we literally had seven employees. We had, uh, we had three sales guys, one shared resourcer, one back office, and one owner. And we were running 100 plus contractors regularly. Uh, it was very niche, very boutique. It was very involved with your clients, right? We, we knew more about the projects our clients were running than some of the people on the projects. <laughs> and um, yeah, I, I learned a whole different <laughs> angle with them compared to the, the typical sales recruitment. Right, right. So, a little, so I suppose if you're looking back on your police career, you've got to utilize that a bit more in terms of those relationship building or... Right, where you may not have done that in the other in the other things. So in July 2013, you moved to K2 Partnering Solutions in Singapore. So out of the UK. So talk me through that. What happened? Um, so basically, Provan is sold, is what happened. They ah. were a small business and they sold to a bigger one, uh, Match Tech Group. Right, yeah, okay. And, um, and I already knew it was going to be a very different business at that time. And, um, and it wasn't really, you know, what I wanted to do moving forward. And, and also at that time, I think I just turned 30. I'd always wanted to work abroad at some point or another. And, and I think it was, it was now or never at that stage. You know, it was a natural ending. Provinus was selling. Um, so I started uh, looking around. You know, Provinus did pretty well. I got up to billing, you know, just under three quarters of a million pound a year in, uh, in new business. And um, so at that time, again, I had a bit of interest 
And, uh, and the thing about K2 that attracted me the most was it was a similar line, ERP, Perm Tech, but they'd gone global. You know, I'd always worked for boutique boutiques. At that point, K2 was almost like a, a, a middle ground of a, of a corporate and a boutique because they were run like a niche business, but they had 500 recruiters uh, right. globally at that time, right. 20 international offices. And, um, and in Singapore specifically, it was actually a rec to rec that, uh, that placed me as they were looking for somebody to, to lead their contracts business and um, who placed you, know, you? Who placed you? Uh, I was a guy in the UK, uh, a guy called Gareth Sharp. He's oh, right. uh, never heard of him. <laughs> small guy, yeah. Um, <laughs> Did you actually get to meet him or not? Never met him in person. No, just over the phone. Right. Okay. And so, when you first came out, then were you straight individual contributor, or were you sort of tasked to kind of build out the office? Like, what what did it look like when you first arrived? Coaching provides the space for professionals to take time to hit the pause button reassess, make decisions, commit to new action and move forward with clarity. To enjoy a 10% discount on our coaching programs, reach out and quote the word talent. The Career Establishment's Talent Talk Asia podcast is brought to you in partnership with Vincere, the new breed tech platform used by 15,000 recruiters worldwide. Vincere is the secret weapon for progressive recruitment firms. It provides recruiters with everything they need to scale from CRM slash ATS through to online timesheets, websites and analytics. A true all-in-one growth platform built by recruiters for recruiters. Learn more about Vinny's story on my exclusive interview with their founder on episode 43 of this podcast. If you're looking for a new recruitment CRM to accelerate growth, visit vincere.io slash Talent Talk Asia for an exclusive offer for all listeners of this podcast. So it was both. So Katie was going through a transition at that time. The regional director had just changed um, and it was the new regional director been there a few months who'd, uh, who'd brought me on board. The sales team was in transition. Um, a couple of the guys had, had left were moving on. So it was a it was a it was a rebuild basically, but at the same time had to keep the numbers going as well. It was con- um, you were doing perm though, right? Is that right? Uh, you were doing so contract. Contracts, uh, hands-on billing and contracts team lead. And Perm was uh, was handled by somebody else at that time. So, were you tasked to build out a contract book, or was there already one that you were you were building from there? Uh, so there was a dwindling one when I came. A dwindling was, uh, one. Uh, there was a contract book, but it was definitely on the way down at that time. So I was asked to you know, rebuild the contract book and rebuild the contracts team at the same time. So how did you go about doing that? What did you, uh, what needed to be tweaked? What needed to change? I think contracting in Asia in, in general is a very, um, you know, it's it's more niche. It's not so mainstream. And I think a lot of that comes down to mentality mm-hmm. because a lot of people in Asia aren't used to contracting, mm. whether it's candidates or clients. Yes. If you ask them, do you want a contract job? Most people will say no. Yeah, it's sort of second tier that it's not as, as you know, not. It is. There's a there's almost a social stigma attached yeah. to it in, uh, in in Asia, and um, and and most people, you know, do you want a contract? No, they move on. Whereas in, I, I think what I did was ask why. Why don't you want a contract? And then they will say, oh, you know, it's only six months. Then what? You know, well. 
over 60 percent of contracts extend you know so yeah. start there's Put more the chance yeah you than you won't right yeah uh, um and then you know I, I think it's just questioning why you don't want the contract and working through those concerns one by one helps to really kind of you know open up a talent pool that just doesn't exist for everyone else yeah uh, that's nicely um, put mm. yeah and the same with the clients right a lot of clients don't understand that they can just bring people on for six months 12 months 18 months because they've never had that option provided to them yeah um you know it's everyone tends to do status quo right so and at that time when you came out were you using you know a system to kind of be able to manage the whole time sheets and you know extensions and all of that or was it all fairly manual uh no so we had some bespoke systems at that time and then and later on k2 did uh, implement salesforce themselves internally for uh for all of the systems Right. Okay. And so in terms of sort of building out that business, was it a struggle to try and get recruiters to do contracting at that time? Because I know I, yeah. something that we yeah. always faced was to get someone to look at building a book and being patient to get their, their bonuses versus a perm recruiter that can get it within a month. So, Yeah, for sure. Same, same issue because, you know, you really do well in contracts when you're running a number of contractors at the same time. So you, you you need to um, be successful month on month on month, but once you are, it's great. But until then, it's a it's a challenge. So yeah, and especially because the market here isn't very contract friendly. You know, recruiters, a lot of them don't understand contracting themselves, let alone the clients and the candidates. So it was a a challenge at that time. And what we did was, you know, we built our own basically because there weren't many people that we could just get from the market. So we ended up training people in-house. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, right. That's interesting. Okay. So um, just from a, in terms of kind of the model that you use over at K2 or, or even just in your current company, I mean, was it sort of, you know, what kind of contracting model were you using? You know, was it, you know, the client says I've only got 10K to spare and you'll try and find someone within that space and try and get a higher margin or, you know, how to, how, what, were the, what was the typical model you used? Yeah, so for, for ourselves, um, you know, because I've never been, you know, from an MSP or an RPO background per se, right? So um, it's more, you know, you, you work directly with the client, you get the budget from the client, you know, you look to make your margins and, and you agree rate with the candidate and you ideally look for a win-win-win. So mm. candidate's happy, client's happy mm. and uh, your margin is hopefully happy. Right. So a simple kind of budget model. Okay. And so what would you say was your kind of secret to your success at that point in your career? Because you're with them for you're with them for quite a while, right? In terms of K2. Yeah. So it was just under four years. I, mm. uh, I Three and a half years I was with K2 and, um, you know, did some good numbers with them so what's good numbers come on dish it dish it what's good numbers you're allowed to say so uh, it was a couple of million in uh, in new business each year that i was uh, i was doing at that time wow uh, yeah that's pretty impressive over, i had a good run and that was uh so eat, eat, the three years i was there basically i was uh, either first second or third globally in terms of uh, actual nfi booked and um nfi billed so both of them we would track new bookings and actual billings coming in and i was pretty much always in the the top three globally during my whole time there um that's amazing and, well done 
Was that a reason why you decided to go and do it alone? Um, what were your motivations at that point? Really, to be honest, no, I wouldn't say that was why I actually started myself. In all honesty, I, I was pretty happy just billing there. In all honesty, I was, um, you know, doing uh, some good numbers, earning some good money, had a good client base, had a had a pretty good setup. In all honesty, so. At that time, I was focused mainly on billing and growing the business as well because, you know, I went from contracts team lead to looking at contracts and perm. I went from just ERP to doing ERP and digital. So there was always enough to, to keep me interested anyway at that time. And so, so what was the biggest motivation for you to go and do your own thing? Um, so again, similar thing happened at K2. They actually had a, a VC investment um, at that time, which led to a bit of a reorg and a, uh, a bit of a, a bit of a shakeup. And, uh, and with the reorg in Singapore, the way everything worked out, um, they ideally wanted me to move to another location. So they wanted me to move to the US or, or Europe as um, they were the bigger strategic markets for, uh, for K2 at that time. And as one of the top salespeople globally, they were quite keen for me to do that. And at that time, I didn't particularly want to move outside of Singapore. I was, uh, I was quite happy in Singapore. I was quite settled. And again, I saw there were changes coming to the business at that time, which meant it wasn't going to be a place that I was still going to be so happy in moving forward either once the investment came the the changes were coming in when you say changes what what are we talking about here when you're saying changes so changes in management changes in processes changes in commissions right um, i can tell by your face the commission part was the bit that that kind of it seems like that was one area that was more pressing was, for you yeah yeah that was that, that was one um for sure you know coming you know, being still a hands-on because the whole time I was at K2 although I took on varying degrees of management I uh, I never came off the phones and being a sales guy and you know having my compensation done with sales and commission right. I, I never moved on to a management bonus or a company right. profit shift right. or anything like that so for me it obviously was a bit more relevant but I, I think it was more the culture you know a lot of the times when a company it does get investment or it does look to take another step or an acquisition, the the culture it can changes. eat away at the culture. Mm. And uh, and for me, it's very important to be in a in a happy environment. Mm. Uh, you know, if you're in a happy environment, you you achieve good things. Is something I've always believed. So at that time, you know, we decided to to part ways, um, and I actually didn't leave to start my own company. I actually parted ways thinking, right, this could be me done with recruitment, in all honesty. Oh, right. Okay. Um, so what happened then? So then I went traveling. Um, I went backpacking across South America for, uh, for a while, which was pretty good fun. Um, you know, I went to the Galapagos, Trek Machu Picchu, met Pablo Escobar's brother in Colombia, <laughs> in Medellin. <laughs> As, as you do. Um, you, do. Um, you know, I had a Cuban cigar in Cuba, even though I don't smoke. I thought I should do that. Tick it off the bucket uh, list. Yeah. Yeah. So quite a few bucket lists on that trip. And then basically I came back and, um, you know, working out what to do next. And it was 
pretty much all of my clients that brought me to this. So a lot of people you know, got back in touch with me and said, uh, you know, Harjit, we miss working with you. You know, we've got a lot of stuff on, you know, any chance you can help us. How wonderful, though, to have that, have those have those relationships that are there that you don't even have to really work, well, you've worked at them and you're now reaping the benefits. So that's fantastic. Yeah, it's pretty fortunate. So, so I actually ended up, you know, setting up my own recruitment firm the other way around. Yeah, you know, there, there was no market, go-to-market plan or strategy. Right. I had no partners, investors, or anything. Um, I was actually sat in my condo um, called Icon. Um, oh, was that where it came from? The name? I was going to ask you that. Oh, that's so interesting. So it was the name of the, uh, my condo. I was sat on the sofa at the time. Um, and, and yeah, so I ended up, you know, starting the, the business the other way around. You know, there was a lot of people asking me to. So I thought, well okay, why not? Let's just give it a go and let's, uh, let's see what happens. That's really interesting. So tell me from starting in Jan 2018, what's that journey look like? And bring me up to date now in terms of the setup, the structure, the culture, what you specialize in. So in terms of, um, I guess the, the journey has been a pretty interesting one. Because um, again, it's starting from scratch really, right? There was no, there was no seed money or anything. So you know, it was quite it was your money, uh, Gather. I assume it was your yeah. money. <laughs> it was, it was, it yeah. was my money. And uh, there was a lot of bootstrapping at the, the beginning. Um, you know, I was quite fortunate that we started with clients from, from, from day one. And, and I still had a strong network uh, within clients and candidates. And that was building the contract out hard. It was that the main focus contracts or was it? Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. To begin with, it was contracting because, you know, that was where... Um, I had my networks and that's where I have that specialty in the ERP market, specifically ERP tech and contracting, which is quite rare in Asia. So we started off, uh, you know, there were a couple of very, very big programs in, uh, in Singapore with, uh, with ERP's SAP technology, where, uh, where the clients had reached out to me. And, um, and then, yeah, I had to literally figure out, you know, how I was going to do the payrolling, you know, it, it was all a huge learning curve, right? Setting up a, a business entity, um, you know, getting someone to do the fine accounting, yeah. um, you know, getting the recruitment license. And, and I did, I had some good people that were helping me uh, early on. Uh, without a doubt, I couldn't have done it by myself. I had a, you know, a couple of people that, uh, one was a former consultant. One was actually the, uh, the wife of a former consultant who, uh, who helped me out a lot as well. And, um, and it was, you know, you just got on with it, basically, right? There were requirements coming in. So I used to be, you know, on LinkedIn all night, um, <laughs> sending out emails. I'd then wake up and call through them. Mm. And uh, How did it know, feel, though, in those early days? How, what, what was the feeling for you? You know, it was your, your business, no one else telling you what to do. What, what, what did it feel like? Well, I think that, circling back to what you asked earlier, what was my motivation to start by myself? It was probably what you've just mentioned there. It was the fact that I wanted to do it how I... I think it should be done because you know we all work for companies where we say well you know if it was my way I would have done it this way or mm. I think this is a better idea but we can't mm. and uh, and I think one of the groups of people who do set up their own businesses are people that struggle to follow other people follow the same path and question why do we have to do it like that you know can we not do it like this yeah yeah 
that, that is definitely me, right? Um, I, I think there's a, one of these quotes that I like, which you know, the whole world says why, and, and I say why not. Mm. Yeah. And uh, um, so I, I think that was my biggest motivation, but that is also what allowed me to carry on going. The fact that I could do it my way, um, it was almost a moment of right now, time to put your money where your mouth is, right? I always thought it could be better if it was done the way I said, well, here's my chance. And now I better make it better the way I said. And were there parts uh, where you felt that actually, you know what, maybe I did get it wrong. Were there certain elements that actually looking back now that maybe you have made made some mistakes? Yeah, I think there's a lot you learn as you go along, right? And, um, and you know, on hindsight, I would have set up with a lot more structure. I would have set up with a lot more, you know, um, visibility for the future but at the time it was you know, everything was growing organically so mm. as I placed more contractors and I'm like oh wait a minute how do I finance them <laughs> right when I worked out a finance solution and it was like right okay I've now outdone that finance so now what do I do next or you know I started to hire people you know what's where do I get an employment contract template you know myself um how yeah everything you take for granted in a company i think you're absolutely right yeah absolutely you you literally need to do everything from step one by yourself right yeah Um, it'd be great if you could just buy all the the templates the contracts the appraisals everything all in one yeah everything and even your own internal you know you uh how do you put a uh commission scheme together yeah, yeah how do you onboarding it? structure, onboarding plan for two weeks of them coming on board. Yeah, all of that. Yeah, I, I think there's a, a big gap in between. There's a lot of like, you know, you work one, two man companies by yourself at home and then you, you, know, you get your bigger recruitment companies. It's the one in the middle when you're going yeah. from a one, two man band into a, an actual company, right? Yeah. Um, things like websites even. Yeah, I didn't have a website for, 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 for a long time even though I was making placements. Um, so th- there were so many things you just learn as you go along. Yeah. Um, well, then it wasn't probably so big on the website and the digital media and kind of digital marketing. Uh, it's only in the last couple of years, well, last year or so, it's kind of gone a bit mental, hasn't it? And you kind of have to have a bit more of a presence in it. Yeah, for sure. I, I think it also depends, again, you know, if you're very niche and boutique as, as we are, it's the relationship still. Right? Well, the referrals. Yeah. The referrals, um, you know, we, we weren't even making sales calls um, when we started this company. Even now, um, if any of my uh, employees want to listen, they don't make enough sales calls. Uh, <laughs> most of our business does come from referrals. So that is so interesting, isn't it? I mean, but I'm interested to know, I know your backgrounds and how there's obviously a big emphasis on that relationship building and you always come across as really down to earth and, um, there's no show about you. So how are you training? How are you developing that relationship building skill in the people that you bring on board to ensure that that follows through and you can keep continuing with those referrals? But I think it's um, it's just the core values of the business because, again, I do believe the founder of a small business should set down the values, the vision, and, you know, what you're really looking for when you're building a team out, especially in a sales business, is you know a, a group of people with the same set of uh, values, mindset, 
and uh, and, and the best way is to lead by example. So, you know, I'm, I'm still on the phones at the moment. Um, I probably will be forever, I think, to some extent. Um, you know, the plan is obviously to grow the company a lot, lot bigger and not to be so hands-on in the future. But I think some element of me will always help generate business, revenue, clients, because, you know, the CEO for me is the, the representative of the company. Yeah. So. I think because I've been hands-on, um, you know, I call clients, I send CVs out still, right? right? So they see uh, that. They see that in terms of their, that's their own training on the job training really is to see you doing that, yeah. And they and they see the results. So, you know, I thought I peaked at K2, um, but, you know, since I started by myself, my, my billings have, have got even higher in all honesty. So um, uh, last year I, I did over $4 million myself in new billings. <laughs> Gulp, gulp, gulp. Oh my gosh, that's just you individually. Yes, me individually, yeah. So are you able to share kind of what you guys did as a whole business? Is that is that confidential or at least round of about figures? Um, so in terms of uh, NFI's business last year, we cleared six and a half, I think. I, I need to double check. Is that the it. most that you've done year to date? Yeah, yeah. And that's all so on we, contracting? Uh, it's about 80, 20. Uh, contracting versus perm. So, what's the what's the size of the business for Singapore now? What's the how many fee earners so do you have? Uh, so, I have ten people in the business, out of which two are a back office. Right, so eight fee earners, uh, including yeah, eight. you. Uh, no, I, I wouldn't call myself back office. Uh, no, 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 no. Sorry, the eight fee earners, yeah. including you. That's correct. Yeah. The eight, yeah. No, I'm definitely not calling you back office. <laughs> definitely <laughs> not. Not from making four million. Bloody hell, you're a really good back office staff. Everyone's going to be hiring someone like you if they if you come up with those kind of numbers. So talk me through. You've you've got those those kind of numbers. Obviously, when we first started chatting a few weeks ago, you were sharing with me that um, you were you were close to um, gaining investment from a Singaporean private equity um, family office. And so can you just talk me through kind of, you know, what that announcement is? What's the change with the business? Like to talk me through that whole, that whole process. Yeah, sure. So um, we, we confirmed um, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we made the, made the announcement last week. So basically I was, uh, I was introduced to um, a, a private equity firm, which is run by an, an individual himself who is a very successful businessman in the past, uh, Mr. Lim. Um, he himself, you know, was uh, was an entrepreneur. He had a, an engineering conglomerate, which um, he listed on the Singapore Stock Exchange in the 90s. I think his company market cap was close to a billion at one point. And, um, and wow. yeah, he had uh, a majority shareholding. <laughs> And um, he you know, ran that company for many years successfully, and then he retired about 15 years ago, and he um, he cashed out. Um, I, I don't know the exact figures, but I would say a few dollars. And, I could probably uh, Google it. I'm so going to Google it when yeah. we get off this podcast. Um, <laughs> and then, um, and then he himself ran a uh, his own kind of private equity family office. They call it so. Right. You know, all of his funds. He puts into other investments, um, into a lot of his portfolio is more traditional. So energy, real estate right. type of businesses. I would say it's probably real estate, yeah. Yeah, we were introduced by a, a mutual connection that I know in the technology world who uh, who knows um, of his family. Right. And 
um, and we met uh, a few months ago. And to be honest, um, from a day to day, it's it's very different. His his history is engineering, energy, real estate. Mine is obviously tech and recruitment. Um, but we just connected very well individually. You know, we we got on really well. Um, you know, because he's a uh, he's a self made entrepreneur himself. And I think one thing he he liked or valued about me was the fact that I did the same thing. I started the business from scratch myself yeah. and, and have made so it profitable. Respect. Yeah. And then the other thing is, uh, apparently, I was the first person he's met in 15 years who hasn't told him, I have the idea of a lifetime. I just need $10 million and I will make him very rich. Um, <laughs> That's brilliant. What did you say then? What was your pitch? Oh, but I, don't, I can't imagine there was even much of a pitch, to be honest. Well, I kind of told him that, you know, we have a good business. It makes good money. Recruitment is hard work. It's, uh, it's a bit of a nightmare at times. It can be very painful. We deal with a very terrible product known as human beings. <laughs> um, yet despite that, we do okay. Um, so, okay, you so know, it's the humble bit again. Yeah, we do okay. <laughs> yeah, so we, we do okay. So, um, and, he, and he was just, um, you know, he, he's, he's very kind of experienced business and overall. And he looked at the numbers and he was like, why are you guys so profitable? Why do you make so much money? And is this uh, only from Singapore as well? This, this office, these, those revenues are purely just from Singapore. So Singapore mainly, we now have an entity in Malaysia and Australia where we are billing and running some uh, some uh, contractors and numbers, but I don't have any employees there to date. So we service that from my Singapore team, but we set up the entity due to client demand um, from existing clients. So um, yeah, he was just very intrigued in terms of how was I generating such good numbers and also, yeah, how was I not telling him we were the best things in sliced bread? And um, and then yeah, the more we got to know each other, I kind of you know explained to him, you know, it's a very it's a very difficult business recruitment, but it can be lucrative if you're if you're very good at it, both as an individual and as a and as a firm. And I do believe there are opportunities because it's a very tough market and more and more people seem to be dropping out of it because you do need a lot of resilience to, to carry on. And, yeah. um, can I know, just ask, is, can I go back one step? So he's bought the, he's bought the majority stake of the company. He's yes. bought the company. So you're, is that, is that correct? He's not bought the com- whole company. He's, he's bought a majority bought- stake in the company. Yes. Okay. And you, t- and so when you said to me before, in terms of that journey, the first round, t- talk me through in terms of what's the future for, the business now that we've got his his investment so in terms of his investment um you know where we got to was you know, he'd asked me you know you do very well how why don't you go bigger and my honest answer was was investment right at the end of the day you you need to hire a lot more recruiters you need to hire a lot more professionals bigger offices and you know you need funds for that and usually it's very hard to get funding as a small boutique company yeah. because people prefer larger companies, bigger numbers, even if they're loss making. That is yeah, the way of the world yeah. at the moment. Yeah. You know, you'd rather have 40 recruiters breaking even than five or six recruiters making a, uh, making a very high amount of profit. And at which point I was like, so then we would need, uh, we would need uh, um, the funds to do that. And he then point said, okay, so if I was to back you and I was to, you know, 
get you some funds do you think you could grow this business and i was like i can i'll give it my best basically right so um you know i think there is definitely potential with the with the right backing and the right funds in place so that was what led to the initial kind of discussion and agreement and the way the deal was structured was there were two elements one is you know, the backing for the company and the second was from my perspective to to de-risk a little bit at this stage you know done quite well made some good money and yes we want to go for the moon but i also don't want to give everything up to go for the moon because you know we do have a good thing going at the moment right might not be so much on linkedin but we do well and you know we have a good team good setup good coach and we make good money so the, the deal that we came to an agreement on was he would initially buy a stake in the company from me a substantial one which would be to de-risk myself and that is him you know to some extent me cashing in some of what i built to date and then the second part of the deal is then to raise additional funding for the company also because again this isn't just you know they pay money for the company to grow for me i wanted it also to be a win-win so you know i will cash out some and then the second part is for the company and that's what we're going through now because the amount of money we're looking to raise is, is quite substantial you know, i'm talking in the tens of millions so you know we want to go big um because yeah, that was my main feedback to him that if i am going to grow it um, I want to go big and I want to go fast. And if you have the contacts and the network, let's do it. And when you said go grow big, grow fast, where doing, is it going to be the same areas? Like what does um, grow so big look like? There's two things we're looking to do. So one is a geography expansion. Mm-hmm. Um, at this point, I'm looking at global. So, you know, I'm looking to get a, a footprint established in EMEA, US and LATAM. For what we do at the moment, and then the by second, when? Uh, ideally, within the next eighteen months. Gosh, that is that is really soon. Yeah. Um, and that's on one side. The other side is in terms of the actual offering. So yeah, we do permanent, we do contract recruitment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so does so does many other people. So we're looking to differentiate there in terms of uh, automating. And, and adding a lot of technology in terms of what we're doing, which I can't really share too much at this stage. Fair enough. But, no, that's okay. Um, I do have a, a CTO who will be joining us pretty soon. Oh, that's and, exciting. And it is, it is. Are you so actually going to put it on LinkedIn, Harjit? Are you actually going to do a post on there? <laughs> you keep yourself uh, so quiet on LinkedIn. So I will I've got a feeling we might hear more from you now, now that you've been on the podcast. <laughs> you probably will actually we are actually also in the midst of hiring a full-time digital marketing branding person Yay! in-house awesome cool uh, who, yeah that will also be there and then so will a lot of other stuff afterwards. and what was the reason for bringing tim on board so what you know what's his role what's his position to be you know coming on board what's the vision for that so with the growth we have planned you know because we've been very lean right very boutique Mm. very niche um you know the main function for tim is going to be as we grow there's going to be a lot of growth a lot of fast growth and it's to almost you know keep the wheels on 
and you know everything that's growing let's put some structure around it let's uh, let's make sure that it is stable yeah. and it is you know being added piece by piece and it still works yeah. you know because the one thing we don't want to do is grow too fast and then the whole thing breaks yeah but i think someone with tim's background that sort of pedigree of the michael page the robert walters structure but still he's got an open mind that he can you know he can sort of bridge that gap between sort of that growing company and kind of where you're going so i think that's a really 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 interesting and so what so that's for, so for the next 18 months that's going to be you're going to be fairly busy then obviously in terms of kind of yeah just a touch so um there is yeah there is a lot of plans there is a lot of ambition and uh and now you know with that backing it's it's going to be about executing what do you think is the one thing that might stop you achieving those goals i would say probably the same thing that stops everybody which is the people it is just getting the right people on board mm. you know it is in in today's world it you know, it's so difficult to get good talent especially in our industry yeah you know um recruitment people want to run a mile nowadays yeah uh, but also i think we shouldn't just look at people from recruitment though right i mean i think it was this can be so narrow i know which i i, I yeah. don't tim is actually my first person i've hired from another recruitment. oh right okay okay the rest of my team i've cross trained from scratch so you know one of them used to be a tennis coach <laughs> one of them was a medical secretary handy uh, you know uh, a couple of grads so I, I've not actually hired anyone out of other recruitment interesting. firms. Uh, sorry, I have hired one or two, but no one experienced. That's basically. really interesting. Really interesting. Now, at the, when I get towards the end of the podcast, I ask kind of a, two, a couple of um, rapid fire rounds. Um, what two things do you attribute to your, your success to? Um, I'd say it's probably my resilience. Uh, definitely uh, from the story back in the, when you were a policeman, I think that's... That definitely showed, didn't it? Yeah. And then I think the other one would probably be just um, my looking for solutions constantly. There's plenty of of issues and a lot of people tend to get stuck with them, whereas I tend to just think, okay, it is what it is. What's the solution now? And then move on. Hmm. Interesting. It doesn't stop you. Interesting. What have you done recently that impacted another person's life positively? Uh, I proposed to my fiance. Did you? Congratulations. She's going to expect a really expensive wedding now. You know that, right? You know you know that you could have done it the other way around and you might have got a cheaper wedding, but now you're stuffed. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> um, I want to thank you so much for being... That was, say again? I think um, that's impacted her positively. <laughs> thank you for your time for being a guest on the show. I really, really enjoyed it. I mean, it was just, I know we've only met once virtually. So for me, I get a really um, detailed understanding of the business and you. And it was really, really fascinating. Um, if you would like to contact Harji Icon Consulting Group, please check the show notes on the episode um, and any contact details of anyone else that was mentioned on the show. They will all be there. I'm definitely going to Google the person that's... Um, got a majority stake and I'm going to definitely see if there's anything on him that I can attach to the show notes as well because I'm sure people are kind of nosy like me um, so everyone please look out for um, Icon Consulting all over LinkedIn I got a feeling we're going to hear a little bit more from him and the company but Hajit thanks so much for your time I really appreciated it no worries have a, have a good afternoon thanks Andrea 
You have been listening to Talent Talk Asia podcast by The Career Establishment. To learn more about The Career Establishment, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at www.thecareerestablishment.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.